So let's start with this question. What's our goal? Where are we going? What's our ultimate destination in life? What are our personal goals? What are our goals for our families? What are our goals for our church and for our community and for our country? And based on those goals, what are the fears that keep us up at night worrying? We've all come here today from different places. We have different backgrounds. We have different stories. We've come here today in different places on our journeys with Christ. And regardless of where you are on your journey with Christ, whether you're just thinking about getting started on a journey, whether your journey's accelerating quickly, or maybe your journey's just kind of cruising along, or maybe it's starting to stall out, or you're even broken down on the side of the road. Regardless of where you are in your journey with Christ, the questions that we need to ask ourselves are really pretty much the same. What does it take for us to transcend the things that hold us back? What's it take for us to overcome our circumstances and our questions, our fears, and our doubts? What's it take to overcome obstacles and failures? What's it actually take for us to leave our past behind and for us to accomplish those goals that we have for the future, to actually get to our desired destination? These are the types of questions that we want to answer together as we spend time over these months visiting with the ancient church in Philippi. When we face issues in our lives or want to try something new, learn to do something new, we typically will try and find a coach or a teacher. We'll seek out an expert to get their opinion, to get their advice. We'll find someone who's faced a similar situation to the situation we find ourselves in, and we'll ask them for help. We'll ask them to help us overcome, help us move forward, help us accomplish our goals. And if we want to overcome the things that hold us back, if we actually want to become mature followers of Christ, then the Philippians are those experts that we would want to turn to. Philippi was a church plan of the Apostle Paul in about 50 AD. And the book in the Bible that we now call Philippians was a letter written from the Apostle Paul to his friends in Philippi in about 62 AD. As we discussed last week, it's unique among all the letters that Paul wrote because it's a letter among friends. It's not something he's trying to write to them to get them to change anything that they're doing. He's not trying to chastise them. He's not telling them they're doing anything wrong. It's really a letter of encouragement. It's designed to help them keep pushing forward, to accomplish everything they've hoped to accomplish and push forward towards their goal. The letter provides us this beautiful picture of what it actually looks like to walk with Christ, 5, 10, 15 years after coming to faith. It's this short and compact letter that's just full of encouragement, and it provides a glimpse for us into what it looks like to be a mature follower of Jesus and part of a healthy church. It gives us a picture of what it looks like to follow God, to be a passionate follower of Jesus in the midst of an environment in the midst of a culture that's actually fairly antagonistic towards Jesus. 
And just like we have different backgrounds, just like we come from different places, the people in the church in Philippi came from very different and unique backgrounds. We spent much of last week diving into some of the different backgrounds of the founders of the church, getting to know them a little bit, getting a glimpse into their personal history and their history with Paul and this deep love and respect that they have for each other. And Paul began the letter by acknowledging this past, the past that they had as individuals and this shared past, shared past that they had together. He reminded them from where they came and he reminds us from where we come. Just like the Philippians were, we're products of our past. But God can overcome whatever we have in our past. And God wants to use it for his purposes and for his glory. So we have to recognize and learn from all the things that we have in our past. But we don't want to get stuck in our past. And so now that Paul's covered the past, it's time for him to begin moving the church forward into their future moving them forward towards the goal that he's laid out for them. And how does Paul start moving them forward? Well, he starts moving them forward towards their goal with a prayer. And so let's start in the same place. Let's start by talking about prayer for a couple minutes. Because prayer is a critical aspect of a growing relationship with God. And prayer is crucial if we're going to actually move forward towards our goal. If you've spent any time hanging around Christians in your life, no matter where you are on your journey, you have probably found yourself at some point in a Bible study or a small group in someone's home where the conversation turns to sharing prayer requests with each other. And as you go around the room, the typical things we usually hear about are stressful family situations that we need prayer for, some health crisis or an upcoming surgery, job issues and financial struggles, just the busyness that we face and the fact that we're overwhelmed and we need a break. Or maybe we have strained relationships in our lives that we need prayer for. Or maybe we're struggling with the kids and what to do with some educational issue or something going on at school and we need prayer for that. And then as the conversation goes around the room, the conversation gets to Paul. What does Paul ask for prayer for? In Philippians 1, beginning in verse 9, he says this, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. All right, hold on for just a second. Do you see the difference between the things we typically pray for and the things Paul is praying for for the Philippians? It's like one of those games, which thing is not like the other things? What we see in Paul's prayer is Paul's prayer is this how-to guide for transcending and overcoming. It's this how-to guide for how we actually get to the goal that he set out for us. And what's the goal that Paul has set out for the Philippians and by extension for us? That they would be full of righteousness, 
that they would be able to stand before Christ blameless on the day of judgment. So let's stop here for a second and go back and ask ourselves the hard question. What are our goals? What's the result we're looking for in our life? What's the desired destination we're aiming for? And are our prayers and are the decisions we make and are our daily activities designed to get us to that place? What are your goals? Take a second to honestly ask yourself that question. What goals have you recently discussed with your spouse, your boss, your financial advisor? How to help the kids succeed in school? How to pay for college and find financial stability? How to get the routine at home under better control? How do we retire at 55? How are we going to fund our next major purchase or the next home renovation that we want to make? Where's the next vacation we're going to take? Or when are we going to finally be able to buy that vacation home? How are we going to get the promotion that we want at work? And none of it's bad. But where does Paul's goal fall on our list? Of goals? Where does standing before Christ blameless fall on our list of goals and in our prayers? And what are we doing to work towards that goal? How do our prayers and the decisions we make in our daily life line up with that goal? Because we will stand before Christ. As we read earlier in Psalm 96, it said, Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness, and the peoples in his faithfulness. Think about it for a second. If being filled with the fruit of righteousness and standing before Christ blameless is our goal... If that is the result of becoming a mature follower of Christ, are our prayers really going to get us there? And like the psalmist, are we really rejoicing at the idea of being judged by Christ? We're resolving our health crises, we're getting a better job or anything we routinely pray for related to the safety and success of ourselves and our families, will any of that really make us a more mature follower of Christ? Again, not bad things. Not bad prayers. But if God waved his magic wand over us, and he suddenly answered yes to all of the things that we pray for, what would be the result? What goal would we actually have accomplished? Would we be full of righteousness? And would we stand blameless before Christ? Which thing is not like the other things? 
So if becoming a mature follower of Christ is the goal, and the Philippians are the model, why don't we take a look at Paul's prayer for them, his prayer for us, and see exactly how he thinks we should get to the goal. Let's see how he would suggest we could transcend all of our situations and circumstances to arrive at the desired destination that we have. It begins with this, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Now, the Philippians, as we talked about last week, they were examples. These guys are the model to follow. Paul's just finished thanking them for their partnership, and yet he still prays that their love would abound more and more. If we want to be mature followers of Jesus, if we want to grow in righteousness, then the key, Paul says, is found in our love. The key to our Christian maturity is love. As he writes to the Corinthians in one of his other letters, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but if I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship so that I could boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Without love, no Christian can be spiritually complete. And what Paul is saying is we can never possibly have enough love. The Philippians were models, and yet he still wanted their love to abound more and more. That was his prayer for them. Because what Paul understood and what he's telling us is that it's love that summarizes the Ten Commandments. It's love that summarizes our Christian responsibility. Paul prays that their love would abound more and more. But what does abounding love look like? Have you ever seen a stream or spring in the mountain that just bubbles water uncontrollably out, spewing it everywhere for anyone to come and take, unreserved, unchecked? That's the picture of abounding love. It should just be flowing out of us all over everything that surrounds us. What is it that bubbles up and flows out of us? And who is it flowing onto? What is the nature of what comes out of us? What others experience when we are around them? If we keep reading... 1 Corinthians 13, we find a picture of what the nature of our love should be. So Paul continues, he says, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. It is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered, it keeps no records of wrongs. 
Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. Is this the picture of what flows out of us? Is this the picture that we are praying we would become? When we pray for our health, is this what our picture of health is? Patience, kindness, self-sacrificing, not easily angered, rejoicing in the truth, trusting and hopeful. Is this how others would describe us? Is this how others would describe their interactions with us? Is this what is abounding out of us? And if it is what's abounding out of us, then who is it abounding onto? Who is the object of our love? Do we reserve it for just a few? Do we reserve our love for just those who think like us, just those who agree with us? just those in our families or in our tight circle of friends? Or is our love free-flowing? If we look at the verse, he prays that our love would abound more and more, but he doesn't actually give us an object of who we're supposed to love. Because the word in Greek is agape. It's free-flowing. It's unmerited. It's unrestricted. has nothing to do with the other person. It has everything to do with us. Paul wants us to abound in love regardless of the object. In Luke 10, we find the story of the Good Samaritan. If you're not familiar with it, what's going on is there's a bunch of Pharisees that are testing Jesus. And one of the experts says to him, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Christ responds, he says, well, what's written in the law? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you got it right, go do it. And the Pharisee responds, but wait, who's my neighbor? See, what he was trying to do was limit who he had to love. He's trying to get Christ to define for him exactly who it is, and as the story unfolds, the point that he gets to in the end is there's no limit. It doesn't matter if you like them or if you hate them. It doesn't matter if they like you or they hate you. It doesn't matter if they agree with you or disagree with you. It doesn't matter if they've done harm to you. You're supposed to love them. There is no limit. There is no boundary for who we're supposed to love. If you're familiar with this area, just up the road from here here on Canfield Avenue, there's one of those natural springs that I was talking about before. And it just, as you drive down the road, it's on the right-hand side, and it just spews water. And there's people who go, and they'll fill up jugs and bring water home to their house because apparently it's really good water, but I don't really know that to be true. 
because there's a fence around it with a lock. So only the people who are allowed, only the people who the owner of this piece of property has decided to share his love with are allowed to take from it. It's reserved love. It's restricted love. The spring's not going to run out. I've been living in this area for a lot of years. It's been flowing the entire time. Anybody could come and fill their jug. It wouldn't stop it from flowing. But the owner has decided to restrict it. But God says he doesn't want us to restrict our love. Our love should be limitless. It should abound out of us and flow all around us. It's like a mother's love. Any of you have multiple kids, you've probably had this conversation with them. One of them says, how much do you love me? And you say, I love you with all my heart. And then the next one says, well, how much do you love me? I love you with all my heart too. And then maybe you have three or four or five or six and they all ask you the same question and they all get the same answer. How is that possible? Because our love is limitless. It's the first thing Paul prays for us if we're going to arrive at our goal and accomplish what God wants us to is that our love would abound more and more. He says... No one can arrive at the place of perfect love for God or for self or for others. When it comes to love, there is always room to grow. When it comes to love, we always need to be working on expanding our love to more and more. But it's not purely an emotional love. What did Paul continue to pray for? He said, that their love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. The love that we're supposed to have is not just purely an emotional love. It's a love that is grounded in knowledge. But how does love lead to knowledge and insight? And how do knowledge and insight actually lead our love to abound? The point is that Our love should cause us to seek out knowledge of the objects of our love. And as we get more knowledge, it should cause us to love them more. The more you know, the more you love. And the more you love, the more you want to learn. The more we know about God, the more we should love him. The more we know about ourselves, the better we understand how God has created us perfectly for his purposes, the more we should love ourselves. The more we know about others, the more our love should abound for them. But that's the opposite of how our world thinks about love, doesn't it? I was talking to a friend yesterday, and he showed me a picture of a wedding that he had gone to. And I said, wow, it looks like a lot of fun. He said, it was. I went to it last winter. They're getting divorced. Because somehow as they got to know each other more, their love didn't grow for each other. Their love dwindled for each other. 
Everything looks good when you're flying in an airplane at 36,000 feet. Every city looks pretty. Every neighborhood looks nice. But what happens when we get down into the midst of things? We see the dirt and we see the grime. The more we get to know people, the more we recognize how broken they are. But their brokenness should cause us to love them more, not less. Romans 5, 8, Paul writes, but God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I wonder sometimes if all it took for Christ to redeem us was to come and be born and then die on our behalf, why didn't he die as a baby? Why did he actually live with us for 33 or 34 years? I would think it would make him love us less the more he recognized how broken we really were. But all it did was make him love us more. As we get involved in the mess of people's lives, it should grow our love for them. And our love should drive us to deeper knowledge, and our deeper knowledge should drive us to deeper love. Paul doesn't contemplate a future for the Philippians in which they abound in love that's separate from knowledge or knowledge that's separate from love. The love and the knowledge are inseparable from each other because love without knowledge is just a squishy, spineless, feel-good sentimentalism. But knowledge without love will make us heartless. And what's the outcome of this love based on knowledge? He says, I want you to be able to discern what is best. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best. Discernment's in a ability to understand and interpret and imply truth skillfully. So what's best? It's not really a question typically of sinning versus not sinning. I actually think most of you guys probably make pretty good decisions on a daily basis. It's not just about doing something that's good. What it is is discerning the difference between good and better and best. In Luke 10, right after the story about the Good Samaritan, Jesus went to dinner at his friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And as he arrives at the house, Mary just sat with Jesus. She wanted to just be with him and spend time with him. But Martha was running around, getting everything ready. And Martha gets annoyed. And she says, don't you care that my sister's just sitting there? And Jesus said, no, because what you're doing is good, Martha, but what Mary is doing is what's best. Martin Lloyd-Jones comments, the difficulty in life is to know on what we ought to concentrate. The whole art of life, I sometimes think, is the art of knowing what to leave out, what to ignore, and what to put on one side how prone we are to dissipate our energies and to waste our time 
by forgetting what is vital and giving ourselves to second and third-rate issues. But how do we know what's best? It depends on the goal. That's why we always have to keep the goal in mind. Our love and our knowledge should drive our decisions and our actions. Our love and our knowledge should help us discern what is the best choice we can make if we're going to accomplish our goal and reach our destination. It should help us discern what any decision will do to us. What type of effect will it have on ourselves? What type of influence will it have on the others around us? Not just is it harmful, but is it actually going to be helpful in moving us forward? Steve Jobs is famously quoted as saying, people think focus means simply saying yes to the thing you've got to focus on. But that's not what it means at all. It means saying no to the hundred other good ideas that there are. Because we have to pick carefully. I'm actually as proud of the things we haven't done, he said, as the things we have done. Because innovation is about saying no to a thousand good things. So what are our goals? Will our prayers, our love, and our actions lead us there? Paul said, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and that you may be blameless in the day of Christ. It's a view from here to there, from present to future. And then if you spin it around, it's a view from the future back towards the present. If we want to be blameless for the day of Christ, if we want to be blameless in the future, then we need to discern what is best today. And how do we know how to discern what is best today? We need to think about what it would look like and what it will take to be blameless in the future. What are our goals? What are the goals that preoccupy our minds? What are the goals that we talk about with our spouses, with our bosses, and with our financial advisors? What is the content of our prayers? I'm sure none of it's bad. I don't actually think any of you are sitting at home praying for evil things. But is it best? And if God answered yes to all of your prayers, would it get you to the right destination? Knowing where we want to go, knowing what the goal is, is critical if we're going to make the best decisions. Because eventually, time will catch up to us. Because eventually, time always catches up to us. Eventually, we will stand before Christ. As Seth Godin says, bad decisions happen for one of two reasons. You're either in a huge hurry and you can't process all the incoming information properly, but more common, it's because the repercussions of our decisions The repercussions of the choices that we make won't happen for years, or we don't think they'll happen for years. So we don't save for retirement. 
We don't pay attention to long-term environmental issues. We fall prey to being swayed by short-term comfort, and we ignore the long-term implications. A bad decision, or even a good decision, can feel really good in the short run. It may even be good. It might be heartfelt, and it might be well-meaning. But it doesn't mean it's the best decision if we want to get to our goal in the long run. If we're truly loving, and if our love is abounding in knowledge and insight, then we will evaluate the decisions that we make today for ourselves and on behalf of those that we love and care about with the future in mind, regardless of all the noise around us that encourages us to fall prey to instant gratification and short-term comfort. Love that abounds more and more in knowledge and depth of insight should help us to discern what is best, not just for today, but so that we will stand blameless before Christ. What would our lives look like if we could really discern the best things and get rid of the rest of it? Get rid of not just the bad, but get rid of the good and the better and just focus on what's best, would it simplify our lives? Would we become less distracted? Would we have more time to devote to God and our families? Would we have more time for our church family and our neighbors? What might be different if we actually prayed for the best thing? And what might be different if we set our focus on just accomplishing those things? We can live lives that transcend our surroundings and our circumstances. We can, as Paul prays, be filled with the fruit of righteousness through Christ. Not through anything we can do ourselves. But because of what Christ has done in us and what Christ will continue to do through us. The only way for us to be blameless is through Christ. Christ has started the good work within us. He's continuing it, and he will conclude it as we yield to him. And he will do it for the glory and praise of God, because this was his goal. And this is the goal that Paul has set out for us. And when we stay focused on that goal... When we use that goal to guide us, then when we find ourselves before Christ, we will be able to stand there and praise him and sing, my God, how great thou art. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would love as Christ loved us. That we would love freely. That the experience people have when they interact with us would be the experience of love 
I pray that your love would grow within us. It would overflow from us without restriction, without concern. I pray that you would help us grow in our knowledge of you and our love for you and our knowledge for those around us and our love for them. I pray that you would help us to be able to discern what is best and that in every decision that we make, you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.